I think we owe it to all of our clients to first ask uh, why and try and understand uh, the context that results in problem behavior. The first step needs to be, I care about what you want, and I'm going to teach you a way to communicate that want. Then we can't expect this treatment to address all other deficits and meet all of the other needs of the individual by simply stopping at an FCT. What I've come to conclude is that it can't do it on its own. It needs the addition of skill-based treatment. Welcome to the Practitioner Scientist Podcast. During this episode, our hosts interview special guest Dr. Mashid Gayamakami and discuss her 2021 publication from the Journal of Applied Behavior Analysis entitled Functional Communication Training from Efficacy to Effectiveness. I guess I wanted to know if FCT works. Dr. Guy Magami completed graduate training in disability studies and applied behavior analysis at Brock University in Canada. So my first job was, you know, on the floor with little kiddos working, doing EIBI. And so I kind of came up from the ground up and uh, could experience some of the uh, procedures that I'm now asking other people to implement. She went on to serve as the clinical supervisor over the Provincial Early Intensive Behavioral Intervention Program for Children with Autism in Northern Ontario, Canada. I kind of got stuck in the same place all the time, where if there were a lot of interfering behaviors, severe behaviors that, you know, we didn't really have a good solution. And a lot of the kiddos that we worked with would also have a hard time transitioning out of our setting into um, typical settings in classrooms where they needed to be integrated. And I certainly became, you know, more and more familiar with the struggles that families faced. Dr. Gaia Magami decided to become a fellow at Western New England University, where she earned her PhD in behavior analysis with Dr. Greg Hanley. She worked as an associate professor of psychology at University of the Pacific for several years before joining FTF Behavioral Consulting as their clinical director. In this role, she trains practitioners around the world to conduct assessment and intervention procedures, such as the practical, functional assessment and skill-based treatment. Here are the hosts of Practitioner Scientist Podcast, John Stavitz and Will Martin. Dr. Guy Magami, thank you so much for sitting down with us to talk about your 2020 publication on functional communication training. We ask every guest who comes on our podcast this question. And so with all of those experiences, where do you put yourself on the practitioner scientist continuum as it stands now in your career? I would put myself a little bit more heavily on the, the practitioner side, um, but I, I don't see the two uh, fields completely divorced of each other. So I think, you know, we're still researchers and scientists and, and practitioners all in one. Um, but I would say that, you know, given that I'm more intimately involved in the implementation of these treatments in a lot of different settings that are not necessarily academic, um, and more on the practitioner side. Yeah, I think that totally makes sense to me. Um, any particular experiences uh, that have led you to place that emphasis more on practitioner? You know, I came into the field because I really wanted to do something where it was very um, people oriented. Um, you know, as I was trying to figure out what to do in my 20s, I, I knew that I wanted it to be um, more service and, and uh, more intimately connected to problems that I could solve, that I could see. I mean, as a researcher, you're solving a lot of problems, but sometimes you don't have a necessarily intimate connection or that immediate connection to it. So for me, it's, um, you know, working with families and seeing the small changes and sometimes the big changes that kind of really um, 
guess that's where my reinforcers are. So that's why I would say I'm a practitioner. Um, what is it that you feel like you'd like to be known for in the field of ABA, either now or in the future? Um, <laughs> useful, I guess, is a good word. Um, you know, we I think as a field and as a society, we're growing and kind of um, on, on a sort of a bigger picture is, you know, how much are you helping versus how much are you hurting? And um, and so I'm a mom. I'm you know, I have a family. I, I know that we have our own values and, and wishes and dreams for our kids. And so a lot of the families that I work with, um, I like to connect to those goals and to go, those wishes and and be someone that was more helpful than harmful. And I know that, you know, as a field, we're kind of facing a little bit of backlash and criticism maybe for some of the, the ways we've tried to help. I think everyone's heart's been in the right place, but um, I like to be known as someone who maybe uh, did listen and could meet those needs a little bit more, maybe change the way I did things. Uh, and, and hopefully someone that's flexible enough and remains flexible enough to change as needed based on the response and based on the, um, the effects we're really having, not just our intentions. Was there anything that stood out to you about this article, Will? Yeah, I think the things that really stood out to me were uh, it's really not a treatment that can be used in every situation or maybe should even be the end goal for everyone. And that there's a lot more work that needs to be done before we can say in what context, with what people, in what situations we should use FCT. So I really thought that it was it was great to hear the strengths of FCT, but we hear a lot about that. So it was interesting for me to hear about maybe some of the areas where we need more uh, research, more support and that type of thing. One of the things that I thought I was just going to get in this article was all the just minutiae details around which versions of FCT worked and which context and with whom. And I think that's, I mean, that's definitely there. She definitely has an ample amount of clear information around what is and what isn't known. I think for me, there was a lot of this article that framed for me how important research is on the effectiveness of an intervention. There's a lot of pieces that need to be understood in order for us to call something an effective treatment and that really was something I had no idea about until she explained it in this way. Uh, within our field, what's the basic idea of what functional communication training is and what it's meant to accomplish? Well, I guess uh, we see functional communication training as one of the main treatments for problem behavior because I think many, most behavior analysts would look at in particular, socially maintained problem behavior as a way of communication. So, um, you know, an individual is trying to kind of tell us what they're doing, and um, but they're not telling us maybe in a way that's um, effective or or, uh, or healthy or useful. So, you know, it could be um, in the form of aggression or self-injury, but in either any case, it's not contextually appropriate behavior or communication. So we see it as a, I think for us as a treatment, as a first step um, to teach communication, because if we sort of go with that assumption that problem behavior is trying to communicate something, then we just need to replace it um, with something that's a little bit more socially acceptable and healthy for the individual, more effective for them. So I guess, uh, I'm not sure if people look at it as sort of the beginning or the end of treatment, um, maybe, and that that might be where, uh, the next sort of set of questions and, and findings are as to whether this is the first step in treatment or can we really expect FCT to be the treatment? And that was one of the 
questions I was trying to answer. I'm curious, what is this relationship between effectiveness and efficacy, and are they both important? That's a great question, and I think it's confusing because we use the terms so interchangeably, right? A lot of the articles we read, we talk about having effective procedures, and um, so uh, one of the goals of the paper, especially the introduction, was to kind of introduce these topics that you know are not um, are not new. Um, a lot of researchers have been talking about them, and in the field of um, you know in the medical field and the general psychological field, uh, certainly these questions have come up as well. But we can think of efficacy as um, whether something will work ever. Right. So um, whether an IV or a treatment or um, a variable that you're putting in place will change um, a behavior under at least one set of conditions. And I usually that's an ideal set of conditions where you've controlled everything else and you're in sort of a um, perfect situation. And you just want to see if this thing has an effect. Um, so does the thing work is efficacy. And then effectiveness is really, okay, you know, what's the likelihood that it will continue to work under all sorts of conditions? And and we can sort of find the boundaries of that. Um, And so it's the, uh, it's not just the fact that it may work sometimes, but we want to kind of make sure it works all the time or, or at least know exactly when it will work. And so a lot of times I think what we're really interested in is effectiveness, because if you're you know, a parent and you're interested in a solution, you want that solution to work in your home and, and in you know, grandma's home and um, out and about. You're not interested in it working in, in one particular place or for a short amount of time or only with one person. So, but we do have to start from efficacy. And so it, it makes sense that you know, we would first find out whether something can work ever before we find out, um, you know, the conditions under which it will work and it won't work and sort of those boundaries around it. Terrific. Um, these are terms I've heard, I think, over the years. I used to use them interchangeably because I, I didn't know what I didn't know. <laughs> so I appreciate you explaining it so well for us. Because um, a couple other terms that maybe fall in that category, uh, use the term generalization and generality in the paper, and you do draw a distinction between the two, although some in our field might use them interchangeably. What's the difference? Uh, again, without getting, I guess, uh, too technical about it, to me, I see generalization as more like a test. We want to see whether... Um, and you know we could break it down into stimulus generalization or response generalization, but maybe we're interested in response generalization, and we want to know whether this response will occur, you know, under this set of conditions. Whether the the effects of reinforcement, uh, without reinforcement being in place, all of a sudden, you know, uh, will spread to other conditions. So, for example, you know, uh, maybe a child's been in a very particular context and engaging in these behaviors, and they go to a new context. That first instance of the child engaging, for example, in a communication response with a new person in a new room under a new set of conditions, we can look at that first response and say, well, that's uh, and you know evidence of generalization. But as soon as we then reinforce that response in that context, which hopefully uh, will happen, then you know other instances of that response are no longer generalization because now there's been contact with reinforcement. Um, so you know generalization is kind of this. This, I guess, in some ways, it reminds me of the word miracle, like, and then boom, there was generalization. Um, and so we certainly don't want to um, focus too much on, on that, I don't think, because, uh, you know, we can train and hope and test and see whether there's generalization. 
Whereas generality is about extending treatment um, and, and in a very systematic way, and not really hoping that there will be generalization, uh, but, but actually planning for it, actually training towards that. So bringing in, uh, in there's you know, different tactics of, um, I think we talk about it as different tactics of generalization, but it's really different tactics of um, generality and extending the treatment to other contexts. So we were more interested in, if we were to put the same procedures in place or similar procedures in place, will this treatment now extend to, you know, grandma and grandpa and, and uh, uh, the grocery store? And will it, you know, extend to um, longer intervals and, and for a long time, will this behavior still occur? So it's really, that's really effectiveness. It's about extensions and it's about um, the, the, the thing working everywhere. Now that we have the key definitions for this publication laid out, let's jump into some of the research questions. Uh, what were your primary research questions that you were hoping to answer through this study? I guess I wanted to know if FCT works. And, uh, and by that, I meant, you know, under a wide set of uh, circumstances and in contexts that really mattered. So oftentimes, you know, we're contacted again by parents, teachers about problem behavior that's happening in the classroom, in the, you know, in the house and out and about in the community. And so we really wanted to see whether FCT works. We do have some evidence of, you know, FCT generality. We, I know that there are questions about, you know, will it work for this particular topography? Will it work for you know, this particular diagnosis, for example, or if a person's mode of communication is gestures versus text or uh, vocal verbal. But those questions had already been answered in some of the previous reviews. We do have some evidence of that kind of effectiveness where it does work for different populations. So we were really looking at, okay, well, what, what makes something effective? And, and we thought, okay, well, it needs to have generality, it needs to be feasible, it needs to be acceptable, uh, it needs to be cost-effective. And it really needs to be kind of implemented by a variety of uh, individuals, not just you know the most skilled implementers, um, and in in all settings. So that shaped the questions we asked. And I'm sure you know within the questions we've asked, uh, there are other questions that hope, you know hopefully will come up and someone else will answer, and questions we didn't have a chance to to ask. Um, but it, this was the I guess what I saw as the first set of questions we could answer. Um, to determine whether FCT was effective and whether we could really say, okay, it's, it's, um, it's good to go for large-scale um, dissemination and, uh, and looking at the uh, definitions of what evidence-based practice is. Those are really big questions to, to answer for our field and for the, the populations that we work with. Uh, why did you select a systematic review to answer these questions as opposed to another type of uh, study or, or design like that? Very lucky as a field, and I kind of wanted to celebrate actually the evidence we have. We have a lot of applications of of FCT in particular, so you know it's something for us to celebrate first that we've we've done a lot of um, efficacy research. There's a lot of evidence out there. Lots of people have done really amazing work and have provided us with um, with those data. But of course. I know how hard it is for us to make time and read all the papers, and it's really, really easy to overlook uh, many uh, papers that you know have come out over the years, especially when you look at you know thirty plus years and over six hundred applications. So I guess uh, I was trying to again uh, be useful. So you know, can we look at these, uh, all of these um, 
articles and, and data, all the evidence that we have, and not just, you know, provide people with an encyclopedia of like, here's a summary of um, this many studies, because I'm sure I would do a poor job of summarizing many of those studies, and it would be better for you to read the original. But really, I wanted to see if, if we do um, a review and try and answer specific questions with all of these um, studies in mind, can we learn something new from what's already out there by doing a synthesis of all of these um, findings? And so I think reviews are really helpful when they, they set out to answer um, specific questions. Uh, maybe you even have some ideas and some assertions ahead of time, um, and then you're kind of testing to see whether you were right or wrong. Uh, I think that's fine too, but that was kind of the goal. We had our questions and we had our studies that could answer that. Um, and I thought including everything, so we didn't really have necessarily a criteria for, for studies uh, meeting a particular uh, criteria for efficacy. Because again, there was, there's been enough evidence of the um, efficaciousness of FCT that we could sort of overlook maybe some studies that were AB design um, in light of every other application that existed. So we included everything to, to be able to answer these other questions because sometimes with effectiveness research, you, you can't have the same level of internal validity. And so um, this seemed just the, seemed like a, a mixture of qualitative, quantitative review seemed like the best way to go about doing that. Dr. Gayamagami, have you done reviews before? And was there anything unique about your approach to this review? No, to be honest, I'm pretty new. Uh, so <laughs> I don't have a lot of experience with research. I had done, you know, a similar project as part of my master's, you know, research project that I had done. It wasn't a thesis per se, but where I had looked at, you know, using reductive procedures and the extent to which, you know, they're needed for, I guess, you know, in particular punishment, the extent to which that's needed for us to have a certain level of improvement in problem behavior. And I had used these bubbles that you see, the pie charts. And I was just very excited to get a chance to use them again, because I know that we don't use pie charts a lot as behavior analysts. But it was just so perfect for displaying these results, because we really wanted to see, you know, as sort of a proportion of a whole, how it looks. I thought it was cool that I could get pie charts into um, Journal of Applied Behavior Analysis. I, I take particular pleasure in that, because it was a running <laughs> joke when Will was working with me that Will is a big fan of pie charts, and so we're always like, we need a pie chart. Where's Will? <laughs> so I love that that's <laughs> something <Exactly>. to share. <laughs> so um, like me, uh, many listeners may have never conducted a systematic review before. Can you please describe how reviews like these are completed? I learned a lot from this uh, in that, you, you know, you come up with your questions and you come up with your set of variables that you are going to collect data on. So I, you know, made a uh, uh, an Excel chart, and I thought I had it. And I, you know, you start reading through your your articles, and um, I guess it's a good thing you're learning. So as you read the articles, you're all of a sudden, you know, come across one, and you're like, I should add this variable. <laughs> I should really take data um, on on these things. And so there was a bit of a you know back and forth between what I was looking for, and then of course you have to go back and and look at all of the articles you have coded to find that. So it's, you know, it takes time. Um, and, uh, and you have to be flexible to kind of look at uh, additional variables. Um, again, as you're learning, you're reading all these articles, you, you're learning, hopefully, and so it's okay to, to modify that. And I think, 
same, you know, in the same way that what I love about single subject design is that, you know, if we learn something very quickly, we can adjust our, our interventions and we can introduce a new phase and, and a new IV and we don't have to go through, for example, you know, 700 applications of it, even though we know, okay, this wasn't actually working. So we have that flexibility in, in uh, single subject design. I think we have that flexibility or we should have that flexibility in this type of review as well, where, you know, we go back and, and we add things as needed. So, and then every once in a while, you know, of course you're like, oh man, I just like have to go back and do hundred articles again. Um, so a lot of patience, uh, a lot of walking away from it and coming back to it. And, um, and then of course, you know, being open-minded that perhaps you had some ideas starting uh, this process, but if the data are showing something else, well, you got to follow your data. It sounds to me like any other sort of research, a lot of work, but also not really knowing how it's going to go when you start out. Exactly. In a few minutes, we're going to be talking about all the things that you did focus on and find, but my understanding without having done a review is you have to pick and choose what variables you look at. You can't include everything. So I'd like to ask about a couple of things that weren't part of the review. Um, you talked about behavior reduction, but I did notice that, um, or at least if it was there, I missed it. I didn't hear you kind of look at different behavioral topographies and kind of examining, was there a difference in what topographies were targeted within the FCT literature? Yeah, I think that's a great question. So, you know, maybe the the um, maybe a, the next sort of set of uh, questions we look at are, okay, you know, is it is it uh, effective for one particular topography versus another? Um, the reason I didn't uh, look at that is um, there are a number of reasons. One. As I mentioned, there are other reviews before this one that have looked at specific topographies of, of uh, problem behavior, and we do see similar findings across, uh, you know, severe like SIB and aggression, as well as you know maybe non, uh, not as severe problem behaviors like um, disruption, vocal disruptions, or even uh, pre-linguistic problem behavior that may exist, but. Um, the other reason I, I didn't is because I guess, um, you know, there's also some evidence suggesting that a lot of these behaviors, precursors and less serious and more serious behaviors are in fact, um, you know, part of the same response class. And so uh, we do see that, you know, treatments that even, uh, or assessment and treatments that target those precursors do have an effect on the more severe problem behaviors as well. Uh, but, you know, perhaps we would learn something new. I, I can't rule it out as a question that can be answered. That makes so much sense, though, what you're saying about the different topographies. I know that your research team has done some really compelling research <laughs> in that vein. There were a few other variables that were not included in this review. These were variables such as participants' diagnoses, age, gender, ethnicity, is there anything that you want readers to know about why some of those variables were omitted from this review? Sure, I guess uh, as behavior analysts, you know, we we do look at um, maybe problem behavior as divorced from diagnosis sometimes because we do take a more functional view of it. Uh, so although you know there might be different uh, different diagnoses of phenotypes, uh, again we see if if we can identify a function for this behavior that it it really doesn't matter uh, as much about the diagnosis. However, I think age and maybe some other participant characteristics or 
the social environment they're in could certainly impact effectiveness. Um, we do we do know that, or we do see, you know, easier, I guess, implementation and change in behavior when um, when children are younger, and we could manage some of those uh, contingencies a little bit better, or maybe there's less of a reinforcement history. Um, but the other thing about FCT that is, I guess, what one of its strengths is that it's a very flexible procedure. So if, for example, we have a particular disability, like I said before, if, if an individual is completely non-vocal verbal, they can't produce sound, this is a procedure that can work for that. If an individual has limited mobility and they can't you know, do much with their hands, for example, again, we can come up with a way, a communication response that can fit those limitations or, or skill sets uh, better. Um, so uh, I didn't think that we needed to look at that those variables because ideally, um, and I, and you do see this in a lot of the the research. You know, the researchers talk about uh, selecting a communication response that was appropriate for that individual given those uh, particular characteristics. Looking at functional communication training and our existing published data. What do we know at this time? Well, what we do know is that FCT is a very flexible uh, and um, and powerful procedure. I mean, we do have some nice big effects uh, with the implementation, but what we just need to be mindful of is where the, most of those implementations have been and, and by whom. Uh, so we certainly see it as a great start. I mean, there's immediate reduction in problem behavior. So, you know, under uh, even not necessarily being implemented uh, by researchers in a, in a sort of a three by three, uh, you know, research room or, or a session room, even as implemented by parents, we see, we see immediate reduction when there is um, a communication response that we can replace problem behavior with and and reinforce it immediately. So that's great because a lot of situation in a lot of situations, you know, we, we need an immediate um, something that will keep everybody safe. So uh, that's great. It's very very powerful. And uh, and as I mentioned before, it's very flexible. You know, we don't have to get stuck on what that communication response needs to look like or sound like or you know what modality it needs to be. We have um, a lot of flexibility with that as well. And some evidence that we do have of uh, schedule thinning, um, meaning reinforcing that response, not always and immediately, and some evidence we have of parents and teachers implementing it also shows that uh, the effects can maintain. It's just we need a little bit more evidence and maybe a, a few other procedures or, or you know, uh, modifications added to it to make sure it can kind of maintain for more long-term and, and in, you know, even... Uh, more realistic and, and um, practical uh, schedule, uh, schedules of reinforcement, like how typically that communication response would be reinforced in a classroom or at home. So it seems like you feel like there's good evidence for a wide range of strengths. Uh, do you feel like there are any clear weaknesses that you found in uh, either in FCT or our literature uh, flushing it out for the public? Well, I think just as I, I truly believe it's, it's really the thing to do for, as the first step of, you know, once you have severe problem behavior, um, the first thing we should do is teach a communication response um, for the reinforcers that are maintaining that problem behavior. So that's kind of a first step. I guess as a sort of a, 
overall finding, or if I had to say one thing I learned, is that it probably isn't enough and it probably isn't the end treatment. So we can't um, put in FCT and just think about uh, some sort of variable schedule of reinforcing that response and expect that to be uh, the end of it. Uh, it's not just communication um, deficits that have resulted in uh, the problem behavior we're trying to resolve. So it makes sense that simply teaching a communication response is not going to be the solution, the ultimate solution and the final step either. That makes a ton of sense. Um, to what extent is there evidence that caregivers can sustain implementation of FCT for an adequate amount of time to support the, the generality that you talked about and or maintain the skills learned? It's very hard to maintain it for, I mean, you know, even if uh, I look at my three-year-old without problem behavior, if I said, okay, I'm going to basically reinforce all of her requests all day long, um, that would probably last an hour, <laughs> right? So uh, certainly there's a lot of evidence. I think we do have, a, again, a, a, a robust enough procedure that with a little bit of training, parents can start it and implement it at home. But to maintain it for um, the amount of time that, that you're talking about all day, you know, as they go through their day, we certainly need more than FCT for them to be able to do that. So this is not something that I would send a family home with and say, okay, here's a communication response we taught. Go ahead and reinforce it every time it's emitted. Um, and I would probably uh, even go so far as saying, even with some of our schedule thinning procedures, um, such as, you know, multiple schedules or, or if we taught some uh, delay schedules using time, that can only buy us a little bit of uh, time as well, right? So maybe we can extend that to about an hour or two. Uh, but there's a lot of unpredictability and interruptions throughout the day and longer uh, intervals and expectations than um, we currently have evidence for that parents would have to maneuver through and F FCT would not be enough. You clarified several of the topics that effectiveness research should cover, one of which was the financial cost of various courses of action. What did you learn about the cost of FCT in your analysis? I learned that we don't provide um, even the, the most basic information needed for us to answer that. Um, and again, this is something that is needed if we want to say we have evidence for effectiveness, right? So uh, efficacy doesn't look at costs. It, it just, again, is a question of will this thing work or not? Um, and so I understand why originally we would not have included those data. But now when we're looking at, okay, we wanna send this out and say, everybody out of school system dealing with, you know, severe problem behavior, all BCBAs should implement FCT in this procedure. Well, most of those stakeholders will wanna know, okay, what, what will this cost, right? In terms of time, in terms of uh, resources and training, uh, and in terms of just money value. And so we don't have those data because we don't, a lot of research does not provide us with how long it took for the training. We don't even have necessarily the initial training of that communication response and in terms of exactly the amount of time and, and people needed to do that. And so there were a few examples of, you know, kind of providing um, 
how much time it took for training or assessment and training and how, and, you know, based on the location that the researchers were, uh, were in, what would be comparable costs for a VCBA. But that's like one or two studies, you know, Hanley et al. provided a cost analysis like that. And um, Wacker and colleagues have also provided some evidence for that. But the other, you know, <laughs> almost over 600 applications, we have no idea really um, how long it took, uh, how many hours, uh, and, um, and how many people were involved. Because a lot of times in these ed educational or academic settings, you know, you might have a PhD level, you might have a couple of PhD level BCBAs involved, you might have master's level BCBAs involved, you might have graduate students helping out. So we don't really know, you know, um, how much would these people have to be paid if this was uh, a service or a treatment that insurance was going to cover or a school system was going to cover. And we need those data in order to say this is feasible, this is doable. This is something that's top of mind for me as I, I work at a, a community-based clinic where we, you know, provide behavior analytics services and charge uh, insurers for that that work. How can we push the field to prioritize and collect some of those data so we can have something more comprehensive to present to folks like uh, insurance companies and other stakeholders? I guess a part of maybe this is hopeful thinking, but I thought perhaps part of the, the point of this um review was to kind of tell us what we have evidence for and what we don't have evidence for. So as a field, I think we are interested in offering um, something that we could say it's effective and it's evidence-based and it's ready for, for long, uh, you know, um, large-scale dissemination. So hopefully by simply uh, highlighting what's missing, that will be motivation enough for uh, researchers to provide that information. I think Perhaps as we are, as a field, kind of moving out of specialized settings and going into schools and, and classrooms and homes more, there might be pressure from other stakeholders and parents and, and um, you know, the consumers for us to provide that information as well. And so, uh, and hopefully more practitioners will provide, will, you know, take up, uh, I guess, uh, doing some of these uh case presentations, you know, there are some uh, evidence of, uh, or, or studies that are looking at, okay, you know, we, we're a clinic and we've implemented this procedure with this many people. Uh, can we actually gather our data and present it? And certainly those uh, clinics would have that information already because it was a pay for service. So hopefully we can have those uh, groups come together and provide this information for us. And the other thing I, you know, tried to kind of highlight a little bit is that we are in competition with uh, with different solutions that are being offered, right? Uh, and so, if we want to have a say at the table, if we want to get the grants that we want to get, um, this information will also be needed. So, hopefully, different contingencies will support the production of these data. As we're thinking about some of those community-based settings where, you know, most behavior analytic work occurs, your review covered FCT procedures in ideal conditions and non-ideal conditions. What did we learn about FCT in, in kind of both of those situations, the ideal maybe university laboratory setting and then the non-ideal, um, you know, community-based or home-based uh, conditions? What did, what did we learn about FCT in kind of both of those settings? Well, what we learned is that it, it's very highly effective in ideal settings, right? Or, or efficacious in ideal settings. We have uh, immediate um, and pretty robust reductions in problem behavior. 
uh, or substantial reductions in problem behavior. And when we look at implementing it in non in non ideal uh, settings, as we add variables to that, uh, we basically start to see a little bit of um, uh, worsening of the effects. So when parents are implementing it, so you know we have maybe the relevant person come in and implement it in uh, in our setting in the clinic. That seems to still maintain high. Um, high effects, uh, large effects. Uh, but then we go, you know, parents in the home, but still with immediate reinforcement, we still see uh, pretty um, large effects. But as we add these things, so it's parents now in different settings, integrity maybe is a little bit uh, lower or, you know, reinforcement is a little bit thinner. We're not reinforcing every instance of problem behavior. Um, it's not exactly the task that we originally uh, trained, so the materials change um, and other variables are introduced. One, there are two things that I found. One, we just didn't have as many applications that had those multiple variables all at once being evaluated. And two, there was some reduction in the actual um, percent proportion of intervention uh, of uh, applications that would give us that 80% reduction maintain that 80% reduction so you know we still we still had a good number that that um, do maintain the 80% reduction in problem behavior and and that is also you know a question of is that good enough or not i guess it depends on the topography right so 80% reduction in tantrums and whining is is sufficient enough but 80% reduction in really severe SIB or aggression in a, in a vocational setting is still not good enough. We need it to be to, to zero. So when we look at those variables and add, you know, social validity and um, to the procedures and to the effects, we just don't have the evidence. Most importantly, you don't have the evidence, uh, which is, I guess, better than having evidence that it, that is to the contrary. Um, but uh, I'm hoping that we can sort of find the evidence because through the application of these things in those settings, I think we will fine tune the application. We will fine tune the procedures. We will find ways uh, that will work. We will add different components to treatment that will give us those results. We just have to go out there and do it. Your review also covered some of the most common supplements of FCT. Uh, what did you find were the most common supplements and and did you find that these were essential components or were these some nice to ha have components or were they sometimes detrimental to the process we didn't necessarily uh find anything that was detrimental but extinction certainly is something that seems to be essential or at least some some level of extinction i guess is what i would say so a lot of times we were looking at you know extinction or no extinction so problem behavior results in exactly the same outcome throughout treatment um, as the communication response, well, there's very little evidence that that will actually get us any closer to, you know, an efficacious treatment, never mind an effective treatment. So there definitely needs to be some differential reinforcement of the response we're trying to establish resulting in the consequences more often or, or better consequences. So extinction certainly is a component that seemed essential based on the data we have right now. FCT without extinction we didn't have good evidence for. We don't have good evidence for. But a question, I guess, that, that has come up for me is, 
does it need to be um, full extinction and all the time? So does it need to be problem behavior results in nothing? Um, so, you know, we have uh, escape extinction, attention extinction, tangible extinction. And to what extent can that actually be implemented in a typical setting, right? So if you're working with an individual that's big and strong and, and can really hurt you, can you really implement extinction in a classroom or, or in a home? So if we can't, uh, you know, really a question, and this is what I mean by once we go out there, we might be able to problem solve and, and find a solution to this. And one solution may be that, for example, we can implement partial extinction. We can implement, um, we can rely more on differential reinforcement uh, of, you know, quality and, and quantity of reinforcement, or we can add prompting and, and demand fading and, and these other procedures that will, you know, again, move the response towards the, the response we want to see and away from problem behavior. So extinction certainly for now, I think is at least some extinction needs to be part of FCT. Problem behavior cannot result in equal and uh, level of reinforcement, uh, you know, as far as proportion and, and um, quality is concerned. What was nice to see is that there's now some evidence for a move away from adding punishment to FCT and, uh, and use of differential, other differential reinforcement procedures, adding competing reinforcement. Um, and then of course, you know, um, perhaps research that my group has been involved in is looking at um, skill-based treatment. So really looking at building longer and longer units of responding. So chaining communication with toleration and, uh, and cooperation, and then reinforcing that longer and longer chain of responding might be uh, a good supplement. Um, we have some evidence for it. We of course need more, um, but that's where, that's what we know at the moment. I was curious that now that you've heard what her findings are about what is, what would appear to be efficacious, what would appear to be effective to the extent we know that, how does that map onto your practice, your use of FCT or other related treatments? Really thinking about how are we using things like extinction with FCT. I know that those are things that in my practice I've said, I really want to get away from those procedures, especially teaching parents how to implement those procedures. And so research that we do have says that extinction is necessary. And so I think thinking more about like, what does that mean for my practice? How do I match that up with what we can do with RBTs and parents and teachers? And how do we make that interpretive leap from what's in the research to kind of what we're doing in practice? I mean, a couple thoughts around that would be one, when she was talking about the importance of extinction, I kept kind of thinking through some of our conversations about the enhanced choice model and thinking through, are there ways to potentially get some of that benefit from extinction? <laughs> but without dealing with some of the, maybe the side effects or some of the issues that have come along with it. And so I did feel like she was maybe giving a nod to enhanced choice model when she talked about the use of differential reinforcement. So thinking a bit more about some of the logistics of the FCT process, you know, we setting is important and implementer is important. Uh, where should practitioners implement FCT and who should be the primary implementers? Well, Currently, I guess this is where you're getting into implications of research, right? So I can maybe assert some things that we don't necessarily have uh, evidence for yet. Absolutely. But currently, I mean, in, in my practice, in my line of work, we do implement FCT um, in a lot of different settings. However, we do still recommend that you create, you know, a particular context, whether it's in the home or in the school or in the um, 
the classroom, we do say, okay, let's carve out a particular time and maybe even a particular location within that location uh, where we can sort of implement FCT originally uh, or, or initially and build some of these skills, bring a repertoire to strength or, or build a more realistic repertoire before you try and implement this all day long in sort of naturally occurring interactions. Um, so I would say we can certainly have um, parents, teachers, paraprofessionals, um, therapists implement this with training. There's, there's some training need. Um, and there's the ability to sort of carve out that time and, and at least that little space, even if it's a corner or a basement or, you know, the living room space um, that we can sort of have for an hour or two a day where we practice these skills. So under those conditions, I think we can go ahead and implement it. But to say, okay, from the start, we're going to just get up in the morning and start implementing FCT trials as they naturally occur. Um, I don't think that that will be the most um, effective way of going about it. Because what's going to happen is um, the communication response initially will contact some long delays or denials and, and extinction that we don't want that communication response to come in contact with. So teaching it in a more contrived setting uh, will probably be the better option initially. That's something that's commonly come up for me as I've tried to implement FCT in particular skill-based treatment in school and community-based context. It, in, as kind of a practical question, how do you all handle that when when caregivers are saying we have extreme problem behavior and uh, you know the, the answer right now is that we can only implement in a kind of a, a tightly controlled setting? How do we kind of bridge that gap and export it to socially valid outcomes? Well, uh, we would we would carve out an hour that let's say we we could sort of work with the caregivers to provide some of those reinforcers on a continuous you know um, FR one schedule. Say okay, so for an hour you know you're gonna you're gonna provide attention, you're gonna provide the tangibles that the individual is asking for, you're gonna remove the demands, you're gonna provide a context that makes this person you know we're really interested in an individual being happy, relaxed, engaged. They're not going to engage in any problem behavior. They are engaged in the reinforcement context. Outside of that, of course, you know, um, it's certainly a concern because building a repertoire takes time and practice. So our recommendation is, well, I guess if you have the resources and you could implement this all day, but provided under that context where you could reinforce uh, these communication responses as often as they occur, which is very frequent at, at the beginning, um, certainly do so. So if you can maximize the number of practice hours you can do with your resources, do that. If you can't, um, this is where perhaps outside of FCT as a short-term solution, uh, what we can do is um, limit the presentation of evocative context that evoke behavior in the first place, right? So if, an, if, a, if a student is going to escape doing math after they've thrown a very serious um, tantrum and have injured people, um, why can't we sort of wrap our heads around, well, let's reinforce refusals. Let's reinforce, you know, um, minor forms of problem behavior originally or initially when they occur for a short period of time. That's not lifestyle, obviously. We can't say, okay, you know, let's let's just reinforce uh, minor forms of problem behavior and let's remove all, all triggers forever. But for for a while, while you're actively building this repertoire in 
treatment, um, I think it's a great safe solution. Now, again, that has practical limitations, right? So if we say to mom, hey, provide non-contingent attention all day long, that's not possible while she's trying to live. So, you know, we try to um, minimize situations where there is um, um, divided attention or no attention. And then, you know, there are other behavior modification tactics that again, in this short period can be used. We can have competing reinforcers maybe that that will, you know, enable some safety for that child. So that's how we handle it, you know, out of practice and in practice um, recommendations. You identified some clear context where FCT is effective. And uh, why can't we have FCT just implemented in those contexts and mediated by the implementers that the literature shows are um, effective uses of the intervention? Because we're trying to deal with it, or, or this is supposed to be a solution for a behavior that is happening all day long, right? So it's it's uh, not a so it's not it's a, I always use this example like you know if it was math if I had to teach a child how to count or how to um, you know do certain academic tasks maybe we could say well let's not worry about it all day let's just have you know the best teacher in this uh, perfect classroom teach those responses um, for at least for now um, but we're talking about the reason we're even contacted in the first place is because this is happening all day long everywhere with everyone. Uh, so it's really affecting everybody's life, uh, the child's life, as well as their um, family and social circles life. So it's, if we want this to work all day long, uh, then we need to evaluate whether it does or not. Um, we can certainly start it where you said, I'm, I'm not ruling out, um, especially with really severe problem behavior, uh, bringing the individual into that ideal set of um, conditions, bringing them into a very specialized setting with highly skilled individuals um, and in an environment that, uh, that we can you know, ensure everyone's safety and, and the best uh, implementation. But we just can't end there. Because simply assuming that because you brought it under control in that situation, now will help mom in the, in the grocery store is just unrealistic. Um, so we, we still have to go out there. I think you've really identified some gaps in the FCT literature. Uh, what should scientists be doing to bridge these gaps? I'm really hoping that the next set of uh, articles that we look at in um, in JABA and uh, other uh, journals we have really at least, you know, one step at a time looks at these questions. So again, uh, it's fine for us to start it in a particular place, build a repertoire, but then you know, I really want to kind of see, okay, do we have any evidence of generality? Do we have any evidence of maintenance? Do we have, did we then bring the relevant caregivers? Did we go to the relevant environment? So I'm hoping that uh, we don't just accept um, data that, that we already sort of have, right? We can fine tune this to no end. Uh, we can evaluate this in, in the, the conditions, uh, you know, in a, in a lab. Um, but then if, if none of those work, it's sort of, I see it as a little bit irrelevant. Uh, so I'm hoping that we at least look at a bigger picture, some, some of these questions. I don't think every study can answer every one of the questions we've asked in this review. That would be unrealistic to, to expect from you know, a group of researchers. Uh, but you know, as a reviewer now, I often ask for you know, evidence of, uh, at least some evidence of social validity, some evidence of generality, some evidence of, um, of uh, uh, maintenance. So 
both as authors and as reviewers, we can ask for those things. We can expect those things from the next generation of FCT literature. And thinking a bit more about the data that we have today and the data that you reviewed, if you were to recommend FCT for a client, what version would you recommend a practitioner should use? And are there specific components outside of extinction that you would endorse as kind of core components or key components for that practitioner to be successful? Absolutely. I think looking at um, initially building the repertoire, I would look at um, a very errorless approach to it. So looking at, you know, a lot more prompting and shaping uh, and slowly exposing the individual to the full extent of the evocative context, right? So I really don't want to evoke those serious problem behaviors, especially if, you know, I'm trying to coach a, a mom uh, in her living room while I'm in my comfy chair over Zoom, I certainly want to make sure that it's a safe environment uh, for everybody involved. And we've been able to do this by really responding to uh, minor precursors, uh, prompting a very easy response. And we have, you know, there's been other research uh, sort of recommending that we start with a very easy, low effort response. Um, Tiger and colleagues um, review highlighted that, you know, in 2008. So starting with that and really working on um, shaping. Shaping is a huge part of FCT, I think. And uh, we got to get back to that, uh, raising our expectations ever so slowly um, and in very, very, very small steps. So I would start it there. And then I, I would say that not ending it with, with just a communication. So again, slowly building some additional skills and for us, those, those skills have translated into um, teaching a child to, to tolerate some, some denial cues and some disappointing cues, like hearing no, not right now, uh, which, can be, um, which can be strong triggers. And then, again, always thinking about we're spending a lot of time with our clients, with their families. They're spending a lot of money on our services. Uh, and I always want to see what skill am I teaching? Not just re reducing problem behavior, but really looking at building skills. Um, and so when we think about building skills, it always comes down to differential reinforcement of an alternative response, not a DRO, not a time-based contingency, but really looking at shaping responses and thinking about instead of problem behavior, what should, what should the child be doing? So they communicated, that's a great first step. But when your communication is denied, what should be the next response? And, and then the response after that. And if you have to wait for two hours, what should you be doing in those two hours? And sometimes that's different types of behavioral chains we got to teach. So let's specifically teach those behavioral chains. So sometimes what you got to do is mom's not available, scan the environment, find something to do and engage with that. Every one of those responses, we're really good at that. We have a lot of you know um, good techniques for uh, task analysis and, and teaching these chains. So bringing those skill building um, procedures into the treatment. So FCT is followed really by skill-based treatment, which relies a lot on DRA. Um, that's what I would recommend. That's what I would say we got to go towards. I think shaping is a super powerful tool. And you spoke to the 
the, the power of it in your answer there and spoke to kind of the strategies you use when you're coaching uh, parents and kind of shaping parent behavior, caregiver behavior. Do your strategies change when you're teaching other BCBAs about the FCT process? I guess, you know, obviously uh, a lot of times BCBAs that we are fortunate enough to work with already are, are great at shaping differential reinforcement um, and, and teaching the skills. So they, you know, we can kind of just make a recommendation and they run with it, which is uh, awesome to see. And so uh, when when supporting parents, though, we have to realize that um, shaping is is not is not something we're used to. <laughs> we take big steps when we, we expect um, certain behaviors. And so I think parents require more support, more modeling, uh, more live coaching of their implementation of these procedures uh, than, than let's say a behavior technician that is, you know, been doing this, these other procedures outside of uh, FCT and, and treatment of problem behavior. Uh, they already know how to shape and reinforce uh, differential reinforced behavior, but uh, certainly parents and teachers um, will need some training. The biggest thing I think that I've had to work with, uh, regardless of whether it's a BCBN, sometimes, especially if we're working with a behavioral team, is for many of us, um, me included, for years, we have learned to ignore precursors. We have learned to just kind of follow through um, you know, don't reinforce these minor complaints and, and, and tantrums and, and really uh, signals of the child is finding the expectation too difficult, too hard, too much. So the biggest thing we have to undo a lot of times is um, actually teaching people to respond to those and to recognize those as signs that what you're asking the, uh, the client to do is too hard. Uh, and maybe that you need to break the step down. I certainly don't, I'm not advocating for reinforcing problem behavior as a matter of practice, as a matter of, you know, this is just part of your procedures. As I mentioned, I'm not sure we really would have an effective treatment that way. Uh, but certainly recognizing if, you know, if all of a sudden you have that expectation and, and there is a blow up, it's probably because you missed some precursors. And that's an opportunity for us to go back, break down the step, break down the expectation, um, and, you know, shape those prerequisite skills a little bit more slowly. Switching gears a little bit and thinking about uh, other implications of this review, uh, your paper specifically calls for some more interaction between practice and research settings. This is a topic that John and I are really passionate about and one of the missions of this podcast. Uh, what do you think that should look like in, in, in a, you know, an everyday context? How can those two settings and, and uh, stakeholders kind of interact more? Well, by simply leaving the, the university, right? So it's, it's one thing to bring the clients into our session rooms in the university where we can control everything. I think simply sending maybe some of our... Uh, um, students, graduate students, to implement it in the home, uh, in the classroom, uh, in the settings where, where these things we're hoping will be implemented and adopted, uh, they will be more intimately connected to the barriers that are present in those environments. And, you know, we are, as a, and maybe I don't want to include myself, but we have a lot of really, really brilliant researchers 
who would then be great at problem solving, right? So, but right now I feel like we're a little bit blind to maybe some of the barriers that exist, or we see that as a problem that needs to be solved later. And what I'm saying is, look, we solved the initial problem. We know this works in this setting. Let's go over there um, and let's help practitioners and, and caregivers and teachers um, make it work in that setting. And so by, by being in those settings, I think we'll, we'll face the barriers. We'll know what needs to, uh, what needs to happen. I think by seeing which one of our procedures are socially acceptable, uh, are, are, you know, something that people will find acceptable and actually do, then we can also be a little bit more open to alternatives, right? So it's, it's, Great to say, well, escape extinction is the answer. We got to do it. And sure, if you're in a in a padded room with all the you know uh, protections needed, maybe you could you can implement escape extinction. But now you're you're in a classroom or you you're in a group home where you see the barriers that exist and also the reaction of people that will see this procedure being implemented, being sensitive to those things, will force us to think well. Sure, maybe this is the procedure that will work. Uh, you can't see my air quotes, um, but not in this setting. So we need something better. So I think by simply, the first step will be for us to go out there, to actually, for our researchers to take it out there, not just assume that it can be extended to that setting. And Dr. G, you're someone who's lived in the, the researcher community and in the practitioner community. Are there some barriers to that happening that maybe the average practitioner might not be aware of? A lot of barriers. I mean, one of the things um, when I was working on the paper, actually, with Dr. Hagopian, you know, he had some great points because he's obviously someone that's done, you know, the majority of this research and he he has lived it and he knows uh, the barriers, um, some of the barriers better than me. And he certainly had a lot of really good points about, you know, there are some contingencies that don't support this. One, uh, sometimes uh, the research is simply not funded for that type of long-term implementation or going out to, uh, to the, the classroom and to the, the house. Sometimes um, parents, for example, may be hesitant to have us go into their setting. Um, so there are certainly sometimes barriers that are not necessarily the researchers not willing to go there, but just not having, uh, not having the ability to go in there. And then there's, of course, the uh, contingencies that exist in just academic uh, academia. I mean, there's tenure to, to think up and uh, graduate students typically have a short amount of time where they're doing their research. So, you know, they want to get out and graduate and, and live their lives. So sometimes the type of questions we're trying to answer can take years. So there is some restructuring of, of um, I guess, our research labs as well that would need to happen. Uh, but I really think, although those barriers exist, uh, there was perhaps a, a comfort or, or a lack of motivation for us to necessarily answer these questions. Again, because the first set of questions about efficacy needed to be answered first. Um, so that's great. I think we can, you know, check that off and say, okay, at least for FCT, we've answered a lot of these things. Now we've got to be creative and think about answering the next set of questions. I know one of your roles right now is to provide guidance to practitioners looking to implement this process in real world settings. Do you have any guidance for practitioners who would want to implement FCT in a way that will improve client behavior in relevant settings, say a school or a clinic or a home setting? 
I, I do. I mean, I think uh, first things first, I, as uh, we would say in FTF is, you know, we can't, we can't expect to, to fix all day first. So let's start first by identifying a context in which problem behavior will not occur and then use that context to teach the communication response that's appropriate uh, for that individual. And, um, and then I think, uh, uh, and then I think what we want to do is um, maybe having a community of support. So if you're a practitioner that, that wants to do this, uh, sometimes it's hard to, to just open an article and say, okay, I'm going to copy the procedures as they did it. Uh, I certainly found that to be the most difficult when I first initially started um, this process. So, you know, having a community uh, of other practitioners that have done this treatment before, that are more familiar with maybe some of the, the barriers that you are going to experience in your setting would be, would be great. So uh, I know a lot of BCBAs feel like they're on an island. So I think maybe connecting through various modes, not just going to the old, um, you know, uh, to the more traditional roots of, okay, you read an article and that's what you're going to replicate. That's very hard to do if you're sort of practicing on your own. So I know that there are, you know, pros and cons to obviously connecting with other groups on Facebook or listening to podcasts and things like that. But there are also a lot of advantages and, and it allows you to perhaps form a community that is not available to you otherwise. And, um, and you know, get a lot of coaching and, and supervision to do it uh, at least the first few times. And, and my final question about uh, implications uh, would be, you know, one of our roles as practitioners is trying to bridge the research practice gap and take the information that we have uh, from you know accomplished researchers such as yourself and translate that into everyday practice. What does responsible practice look like for uh, you know a practicing behavior analyst beyond the established evidence-based practice that we that we have for kind of the FCT process? I think as a, a practitioner in in this field, we we do have some tools that enables us to evaluate our practice um, just on our own. So uh, we have uh, single subject designs that are uh, very suitable for. Um, clinical practice, we can we can use um, multiple baseline across participants. A lot of times, uh, that's just a, a perfect fit to a lot of the clinical work we do because um, you know we will have different uh, clients that uh, we're starting with and we're doing the same procedure over and over again. And so, by simply um, staggering the introduction of our treatments, uh, maybe with these clients and taking some some good data. Uh, we can uh, we can take a look at whether an approach is working or not. So I think uh, familiarizing ourselves a little bit more with single subject design and and what are some uh, designs that can work well for the different procedures we're trying to implement will certainly elevate our practice a little bit more. And again, I think that's a, a great um, area where we can connect with other practitioners and and sort of get some help with that. And then I think um, really just reporting our data. I think we we have a lot of practitioners that are that are sitting on you know so much data, uh, daily session data that that is probably um, great and would teach us so much. And I know that there are a lot of 
students that are often looking for you know practicum experiences uh, to get them intimate with uh, with some of the procedures we use. So um, using some of those resources to maybe obtain more data or more IOA. There are some barriers exist, of course, that, uh, that you know stops practitioners sometimes from, from publishing. But uh, I think it would be great to, to get our hands on some of those data that exists that are just you know clinical applications. That's the type of data we need for effectiveness. So maybe it's a little bit, you know, messy. And, and as a practitioner, you're kind of thinking, no, no, this is, this is not uh, the type of data that's normally collected in, in research. And they're probably correct that a lot of our efficacy evidence needs to be a little bit more, um, you know, under tight conditions. But effectiveness research is really looking at, um, you know, implemented in a typical setting with all of the uh, maybe uncontrolled variables that come into that context. So FCT, I think, is ready for that. And if we can just sort of tap into that, uh, maybe partnering up with some researchers, partnering up with some universities um, to provide those data. Um, and, and then I think part of the responsibility maybe is also on us, on, on those of us that are reviewers and, and action, I mean, um, editors and uh, of the journals to kind of accept those types of publications and and think about, um, you know, given the ample evidence of efficacy that we have for FCT, maybe we can be a little bit forgiving of uh, a lack of, you know, tighter experimental control or, or whatnot that a, a clinic-based data will provide for us um, and, and still allow those data to be um, available to the population, to, to all of us. Um, so I'm hoping that we get some of those uh, from just the clinical applications that are already happening. If uh, a practitioner is listening to this podcast and either they're now going to read your article or, or maybe they say, I, I want to make sure I get the main point, uh, whether or not I, I, I read the entire review, what do you want practitioners to understand from this? Well, uh, what I'm hoping practitioners take away from it is is what's shaped my practice now, which is um, to really my go-to for severe problem behavior, my go-to treatment is FCT. I start with that. And uh, and I teach a communication response. Even, uh, you know, more recently, we teach a communication response when uh, we're dealing with, um, for example, stereotypic behavior, non-self-injurious non stereotypic behavior. So even though there's automatic reinforcement involved, um, you can still teach a communication response to the child to basically access, uh, you know, uninterrupted uh, enjoyment of their stereotypic behavior. So that's my go-to. My go-to uh, treatment uh, right now is FCT for problem behavior, because I do see that communication is the first deficit in a lot of these cases. Even in um, individuals who do communicate, have a vocal verbal repertoire, the, the point is that when they are faced with a frustrating um, situation, an evocative situation, a difficult situation, obviously they're not using their communication that, um, that they do have, and instead they're engaging in problem behavior. So first step, FCT. But then as I mentioned before, second step needs to be, okay, what other skill deficits have resulted in problem behavior? 
being at such strength and, and so interfering. So looking at uh, a lot of times when I'm talking to practitioners, even at the initial uh, meeting where we're discussing assessment, I often ask the question, if problem behavior wasn't happening, what should this individual be doing? Tell me what they should be doing. Um, and that's the question we got to answer. Um, a lot of times, you know, we say things like, well, he should tolerate not having his way. Um, what does that look like? What, what would toleration look like? Or, you know, uh, the child needs to wait uh, for, for X, Y, and Z. Okay, what would waiting look like? Because toleration and waiting in different contexts are different. Um, sometimes you are tolerating and waiting by following a very specific set of expectations. Other times the expectation is for you to figure out what to do. I mean, those are two general contexts that we see um, these problems existing. So as a practitioner, I think identifying, if you weren't tiptoeing around problem behavior, if you weren't avoiding um, certain triggers, uh, if you really could hold this individual to a reasonable expectation, what would that look like? What would the individual be doing? And it's both sometimes uh, shaping up that expectation, meaning expecting more because your life has been so dictated by problem behavior and tiptoeing around all these triggers that, that your expectations of your student or your child are so low that we can raise that a little bit. And sometimes, you know, the expectations are too high. Like when your alarm clock goes off, jump out of bed at, you know, in, in 30 seconds. I'm like, who does that? I don't do that, <laughs> right? So sometimes it's bringing it down and, and making it more realistic uh, because certainly the purpose is not for us to teach an individual to tolerate whatever context they're in. Uh, I think what we need to understand is that problem behavior can be adaptive, can be actually exactly the right response. We're all capable of engaging in serious problem behavior, and I hope we do if we're put in a situation that is unfair and unreasonable. And so we certainly don't want to teach our clients uh, and a lot of children that are vulnerable to simply tolerate whatever situation they're in. But we certainly want them to communicate their needs, their wants and needs. That's where FCT comes in. It's the main deficit of most of the diagnoses that um, individuals are, are given and, uh, and most of us, you know, if we could be better communicators, clearer communicators of our wants and needs, uh, we would probably have an easier time in life. But then, you know, the second part of that is your wants and needs cannot always immediately be reinforced, but they should be sometimes. And so that is, uh, I guess, the other takeaway is that, you know, a lot of times, too, we, we used to look at teaching a communication response and then always delaying delivery of that reinforcer for that communication response. Whereas another um, feature of, you know, the, the um, skill-based treatment that I now recommend along with FCT is that communication response should continue to be sometimes immediately reinforced. Because then why would you ever ask, right, if the answer is always no? So just looking at um, all the deficits and really looking at what should be expected of you, what's a reasonable expectation of the client, and then what's the repertoire that we need to teach in order for them to meet that expectation. It's a wonderful response. I love how you're bringing together what, what you know as a clinician, what you know as a person who lives in the real world and has your eyes open, <laughs> and then you know the, the best evidence that our, that our field has to offer. And I think that's just... That's a really wonderful way, I think, to for practitioners like me to, to um, understand what this paper is all about. And, you know, John, it's also a marriage of 
I guess not having uh, different uh, groups or different um, teams uh, working with a client, but having everybody at the same table, right? So if you are working in a in a clinic that's, for example, serving, you know, providing comprehensive treatment or EIBI to a client, there shouldn't be uh, a team or a BCBA that's dealing with problem behavior or a program that's dealing with problem behavior and a program that's dealing with skill based. Um, instruction, uh, skill-based, um, you know, skill acquisition. So a lot of times those are like either two separate teams or two se- separate programs. And, and what we're advocating for here is behavior reduction should be combined with skill acquisition. And, and you know, if you have two teams, they should all be at the table and, and determine, for example, okay, what are the, the language goals? What are the, um, uh, you know, Learning to learn responses that this individual needs to uh, needs to learn. What are some vocational skills we want to teach? Um, and it all can happen in the context of of FCT because uh, once you can't have what you want, we can we can teach all of these responses in that uh, period of time uh, that you're basically, I guess, tolerating um, denial of your requests. Well, Dr. G, thank you so much for sitting down with us and talking through this paper. I know I feel pretty energized by this discussion. I want to drive back to the clinic and start implementing right now. Uh, could you tell us a little bit about what's next for you and maybe FTF or just your research interest and and maybe publications to look out for in the future? Sure. Um, you know, there are a lot of small questions and big questions, but um, one of the, the biggest things that comes up a lot of times is the order of things. Uh, this comes up a lot in, in practice. So, for example, initially when we do FCT, you know, we can start with a very basic uh, and, and easy, as I mentioned, communication response. And a lot of times that that basic and easy and, and uh, new communication response may not be as socially accepted, may not be as developmentally appropriate. It may be too easy for a vocal verbal child that we have you know, bigger expectation of uh, uh, as far as their um, communication is concerned. And so a question that comes up a lot is, um, should you spend more time first um, making that communication uh, more complex, more socially acceptable, more developmentally appropriate, or should you first teach some toleration of denial of that request? Um, So that comes up a lot. Um, When parents are not the initial implementers, uh, certainly the, the order and the timing uh, of when should we introduce parents? Should they be a part of the process from the start? Uh, maybe, um, you know, the therapist does some teaching and then the parents do some. So, you know, the extent to which you first maybe work on acquisition alone and then introduce variables that it will extend the generality of treatment, including, you know, the introduction of parents and teachers, or should you do it alongside um, your treatment. Um, how how do you even teach, you know, the different skills that I mentioned following communication? Um, do you first introduce uh, these responses again under a tight condition, or do you go into the different environments at first? And um, a lot of these questions, you know, it's, it's hard research. It's it's not easy to answer them because. You know, maybe they require um, comparative analyses and component analyses of of these um, particular decisions. And as a practitioner, a lot of times you have to make these decisions. You don't have time for uh, the research to really give you the answer. And so um, 
I, I hope we we do that research. It is certainly something that that I'd like to be able to answer uh, for myself sometimes, sometime in the future. But um, what I think at the moment I do is uh, I simply look at uh, what will give us more buy-in, uh, what will give us uh, a more uh, immediate solution, because a lot of times uh, you know problem behavior obviously is is being managed you know, uh, with a lot of risk. And so, you know, will building toleration and cooperation provide us with a, a safer context overall, uh, or will better communication? And so um, looking at that, looking at safety and um, and the, uh, the extent to which caregivers will continue to do this hard work, right? Which is committing to this treatment and implementing it and will not lose their interest or their motivation for it um, guides the decisions I make. But we have a lot of questions to answer. Um, another thing is, you know, without extinction, FCT without extinction, if we can't really implement it without extinction, uh, what are some things we can do? To what extent can we reinforce precursors and even severe problem behavior, certainly severe problem behavior um, without it, um, being detrimental to the overall success of treatment. Because the reality is that those behaviors are going to have to be reinforced sometimes. Sometimes the safest thing to do is to simply reinforce problem behavior in the moment. Those are really important questions for us to try and figure out. And I, I know we have good people on the case like you and the other folks at FTF to help answer those. So thank you again so much for taking an hour or two out of your day to spend it with us and, and talk through this important work. It's been a, a joy talking with you and I just really appreciate it. Thank you guys for the opportunity. I really enjoyed it. This episode of the Practitioner Scientist Podcast is brought to you by the Vanderbilt Kennedy Center's Treatment and Research Institute for Autism Spectrum Disorders. Triad would like to thank Dr. Nasheed Gayamagami for her participation in the second episode of the podcast. Access to the article discussed in this episode, as well as contact information for Dr. G and our hosts, can be found in the show notes. The thoughts, views, and opinions expressed in this episode are those of the individual hosts and guests and do not represent the thoughts, views, or opinions of Triad, the Vanderbilt Kennedy Center, or Vanderbilt University Medical Center. This episode was written and produced by John Stobbins and Will Martin. Dave Coleman edited and mixed the episode at Howard's Apartment Studio. All music for this episode was written and performed by John Stobbins, Corey Nichols, Nick Milliner, and Dave Coleman. Produced, engineered, and recorded by Dave Coleman at Howard's Apartment Studio. Special thanks to Nicholas Holt for helping to navigate the world of Zoom recording.